Hi, my name is Wale Manuel, and you're welcome to a new episode of In These Moments. Today's episode features the conversation I had with a friend of mine, Zianda, who is South African and lives in New York City. About a year ago, we sat down to record um, an episode which never made it out because things just were not as good as they could be. But we decided to do this again recently and our conversation was centered around her growing up in South Africa, the issues of violence against women in South Africa, dealing with the aftermath of apartheid and some of the differences she noticed living in the United States compared to living in South Africa. This episode is the first episode with somebody from South Africa. I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. As somebody who has lived in the diaspora for over a decade, I haven't come across a lot of South Africans compared to other countries. You come across Ghanaians, people from Mali, Senegal, Cameroon, Togo, and just different countries. But South Africa is one of those countries that doesn't have as much exports as other countries. So this conversation is with somebody who left home and decided to follow the path of moving to the United States. Also, for parts of this conversation that didn't make the episode, head out to patreon.com slash Wally. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Wally. You'll find the extra stories that she shared with me and also extra stories from previous episodes on there. Without further ado, let's get into Zianda's story. My name is Zianda. I am originally from Port Elizabeth, South Africa. I currently live in New York, and I think that's a nice baseline. I grew up middle class, but also being black and middle class is kind of an illusion because you are almost completely attached to the township or ghetto culture, depending on your locale, how you describe working class. Especially having had a single mom, my mom would drop me off at my grand's house, sometimes for a weekend, sometimes for a day. Mom was a nurse, you know, and in nursing hours was strenuous. So I had a very balanced understanding of South Africa in that way, how poor people lived versus how middle class people lived. If you don't know what apartheid is in South Africa, between 1948 and 1994, a white minority government from Dutch descent decided to legalize segregation and racism in South Africa, leaving the majority, the 90% of South Africans, in a rather precarious and oppressive situation. This includes forced removals from land where our ancestors had all lived. Um, this included segregating communities that were mixed. South Africa has quite the mix of, of cultures and races and languages, 12 official languages to be exact. It was violent. It was a genocide of, of, of young black people and older black people. It was the murders and assassinations of incredible black intellectuals and black minds and the imprisonment of a lot of the uh, black children and, and men and women who sacrificed their lives so that we could have as the majority the right just to walk around without a curfew or a pass. 
my father was in the liberation movement and he spent 12 years in Robben Island and subsequent to that became an advocate and then a judge. My mother was a nurse throughout her life from her early 20s until she retired. And so I came from a particular kind of mindset around blackness, but also a trauma because these folks had endured incredible trauma, oppression and humiliation on their own land from the white minority. And with that came its own things. My father had to make up for his youth without realizing it. He went to jail when he was 22. And so in a lot of ways, he was quite stagnant as a dad, but an incredible man, an incredible lawyer, an incredible judge, an incredible political thinker, an incredible philosopher and critical thinker. To some degree, shape how I would uh, go on to, to think and read and understand the world around me. My mother is less so politically astute, just a different kind of an intelligence, a different way of thinking about things. And in all fairness, she is a black woman, which has, you know, you in that way, when you're a black woman, you're black twice. And so I don't think she was allowed the space to become a critical thinker in the same way that my father was. It's always been easy for me to make mates and friends and I would like to disappear and go hang out with a boy up the road, you know, when I'm eight or nine. And my grandmother would freak out because my cousin, who was four or five years older than me, she's four or five years older than me, she got raped coming home from swimming lessons once at 13. And so there was a sense of me getting shelved a little bit more than her because she had unfortunately been raped twice before she turned 15. In the one case, she knew her assailant, and the other, she didn't. And I think that for them, the things that happened to her, and it's so sad that she had to pay the price for my protection because they then realized where the gaps were in raising a girl versus raising a boy. And so by the time I came along, it was more of a concerted effort to protect me. Also, it makes one very hypervigilant. I was informed that your cousin got raped, and therefore you aren't allowed to be out the house at X amount of time. Your neighbor got kidnapped and killed, so you can't go down this road if you see a guy who looks like this. So when something happened, it made me and the family more hypervigilant. So I'm definitely not a relaxed person. I'm very intense about security. I'm very intense about um, who people are. And that PTSD of growing up in a country where femicide and rape are so common that you're almost just waiting for your turn, I still carry that with me. In New York, where it's significantly safer, I still carry that feeling with me. There's certain things that make me uncomfortable so that I can't sleep. There's certain interactions and looks and aesthetics of men that I don't like because I know that equals trouble or potential danger. Because even if you grow up a little bit sheltered in South Africa, there's no way to escape the reality of your life constantly being in danger as a woman. I started going to a girls' school in grade three, and I was so excited because the girls, I would see them, you know, they, they had great posture, they always looked so happy, and everyone associated that school with prestige. And when I got there, the reception at first was, was, was fine. It was good. I didn't feel too much of a type of way about it from the teachers. But I suppose the teachers in my third and fourth grade were more sensitive for the most part and not so much that they were woke or conscious they just didn't want to say the wrong thing 
which I think is very different to being conscientious. Being conscientious versus not wanting to fuck up are two different things. How I saw boys versus how I saw men was very different. How I saw boys was less of a threat, my peers. So when you're 10, 12, 13, 14, I didn't see the danger in men yet, at least not in my peers yet. I would then see the danger in my peers at 15, 16. But I associated danger with men because I was told it's men who are going to kidnap you, men who are going to molest you, men who are going to rape or try and kill you. It was always look out for some random man you don't know as a child. However, that thinking around that evolved because suddenly, you know, you're 16, 17 and your peer who's now 18, 19 becomes a predatory threat. And the behavior you were warned about looking for in these older men is suddenly a guy you know or like know peripherally who you've had chats with who suddenly can't read the signs or read the room or who just takes your friendliness as a sign of interest in him sexually. There comes a point where a boy transitions into a man and he becomes dangerous. I remember the first funeral I ever went to for a little girl was because she got abducted and raped and killed. And we were five. She was in my class. One moment, she was in my class. The next moment, her body had been went missing for a day or two. Body had been found. That was the first time the boogeyman stories we'd been told about why you don't talk to strangers, why you don't cross the street by yourself, why you don't go. All the safety precautions, it had all been these very like distant stories that you read on the news until she died. Then all of a sudden it was like, oh shit, this could literally happen to me. I've literally felt that way since because it's so close to home. I had lived next door to this family, a very big extended family where the grandmother was the matriarch and her children had some sort of trouble at one point and so she was raising the grandkids because it was a stable environment and we were closer to good schools. And they had this uncle, I suppose. I'd never met this guy before, but he comes over one day when he hears my mom has gone to England. He comes over next door and says, hi, he comes and he kisses me on the mouth. Like he knows me. And I was just like, who are you? He's like, I'm uncle so-and-so. And I was like, I don't have an uncle so-and-so. And he's like, no, I'm from next door. I'm so-and-so's uncle. I'm uncle so-and-so. I'm like, I don't know you. And then he's like, no, I just wanted to come get you so we can go out for a like, you know, have fun for a day or whatever. I'm like, no, I don't go out with old men. That's weird. At this point, I'm 12. And then he says to me, I came here out of the prince of my heart to check up on you. So I heard your mom was in England. He got so irate. He escalated. Luckily for me, I'll stay in domestic nanny helper person was there too and my cousin and he this guy's escalating and escalating and he says i even gave you a kiss and you have morning breath i'm like it's 7 a.m so i do not know you this is very weird that was my first encounter of like whoa like danger could literally be in your house that was like one of the first times i realized your assailant could be in like your home so i called my mom immediately she says we don't know that man that man tried to come into my house once before looking for you She's like, that was literally like six years ago when you were six. He was already fixated with you. I remember that instance. It didn't feel, it felt like an assault at the time, which is why I called my mom up, made a scene, everyone was involved. He never came back to the neighborhood again. We threatened him with police. I called my dad. It was a whole saga. Listen, a greeting kiss pick on the scale of sexual harassment and sexual assault is minor. But it was still so traumatic that this man could literally feel like he'd come to my house and come just take me out for a ride. It was weird. I asked her if growing up in South Africa and knowing of the horrible things we hear about violence against women affects her romantic relationship with men. 
because I'm so hyper vigilant, there's certain kinds of guys I just wouldn't hang out with. Even if he's friends with my friend, if it's my friend's cousin, my friend's friend, my friend's older brother, anything that is just like my spidey senses tingling, no, you aren't allowed in my space. And I've always been vocal about why. I'll say you creep me out or I don't like your style kind of thing. And they know what that means. Relationships wise, the things that have affected my relationships have been less about men's violence and more about my daddy issues. I take honesty very seriously because my dad deceived my mom in a lot of ways. And in ways that he grew up believing men can and should deceive women that they want. And so I don't like deception from men. I want honesty from the get-go. But honesty means that he respects me as his equal. And that is why I feel like I have a vetting process because by, by the time we get into a point where I would like you to be honest with me, I would have assessed that you respect me and treat me as an equal. I found throughout like my 20s, I was very attracted to narcissists. I noticed at 28, 29, that started changing, that I was only interested in nice guys, guys who, who were not conceited and self-centered because you're not sitting and praying and hoping he sees your humanity and your value. So my thinking around who I pick has changed a lot through therapy and through growth and changing my own environment. Zianda talks about facing racism at a young age and dealing with the effect of racism and colorism. The racism became clear to me when I was six. Colorism and, and things like hair texture get pointed out to you when you're young. So I grew up with uh, my, my grandmother's color, so a lot of my family was colored too. And for those of you who don't know, colored folks are a Creole nation of South Africa who um, are a black subgroup. But oftentimes people are also white passing within that group. So there's a lot of contention between them and the other predominant black groups. So on the one hand, you know, there were times I would be in spaces where people are darker skinned like the average African and be lauded for being lighter skinned. And then being in the other Creole environment where I wasn't light enough and my hair was too nappy. And so that was pointed out. That was when I realized that there's something going on here. There's a hierarchy. The face of my face racism, I was six. I was six years old and I was in grade one and I was in the prep school. And the blondest boy I had ever, 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 ever seen accosted me and my friend. She's from the Creole group that I'm speaking about, Pallets, and I'm black presenting, and he is just this white, blonde child. And it's an innocent enough conversation. It must be three or six months into school. It can't be that deep into school. And he says, well, you guys are black and I'm white. That makes me better than you. He said that his dad said that white people are better. And if his dad's a white man, then he must be right. And that was the first of my experience racism from this very blonde boy. And then when we reported it to the teacher, she was awkward about it. She wrote a letter and whatever, whatever. But what could she do? This is 1996, 97. There's no precedent with how you deal with issues like this if you're a white teacher in a predominantly white environment when your, your black students are faced with racism. That was the first time I realized that white people won't do that much to help you combat racism if you experience it in their spaces. And then I will just go on to face daily racism and rejection like any other brown or black person going forward. I have vehemently been fighting whiteness in South Africa with regards to recognizing my humanity since I was young. And obviously I've gotten more hardcore as the years rolled on and I cared less and less about who I attended. 
Like South Africa, America is notorious for having a terrible record with racism. Zienna talks about the differences between the racism she has witnessed in South Africa and the racism she has witnessed in America. Depending on where you are in America, a metropolis like New York, LA, the racism is subtle, but it's there. It's subtle, but still overt. There's some, I don't know, dignity with it to some degree. South Africa, it's very visceral. It's almost combative. Like people are always waiting for shit to pop off. And it's crazy because I often think, I don't know why you'd be the minority living the way you do there, thinking that you have any right to threaten people with a good time. And by that, I mean, South Africans are owed an apology by the European colony settlers that have come there and are now like third, fourth, fifth generation. We are owed an apology and just like some shame, a little bit of shame. They don't want to be ashamed, they don't want to apologize, they don't want to acknowledge. And so I think that this combative, visceral type of racial tension is going to be a long-standing thing in South Africa. Until black people just decide that they're going to just do something to kind of get their comeuppance. What that will look like, I can't tell you. I think that's going to be the chapter for Gen Z slash Gen Alpha to take care of. One really can't predict, and that's one of the, like, my favorite things about South Africans, is every now and again we surprise ourselves. So one really can't predict how it will manifest, but know that it will manifest. The poor will eat the rich, and black people will stop trying to appease whiteness to some degree. She talks about moving to America and how the help of the immigrant community has helped her find her tribe away from home. The first time I came to New York, Outside of like travel and tourism, I came in 2016 for an advertising job and I was just prepared to do it. I had a support system here because again, privilege begets privilege. So I had like people here who were willing to give me accommodation for two months for free and like, you know, help me get my feet on the ground. I also know the difference between New York and America. So I knew I was coming to New York. I had lived in DC for, for like two, three months once, working at a hotel reception for like those J1 summer exchange jobs, you know, where you come for three months in between college years. So I was familiar with where I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. I had had a good time in DC, but it just wasn't, the pace was wrong for me. So when I came in 2016, it was easy breezy. It's unlike most immigrant stories. I was very fortunate that my mom living in England, again, it was predominantly Nigerians, Zimbabweans and Jamaicans. And she was living in Brixton. On the border of Brixton and I want to say Dulwich, yes, on the border of like, so like South London. Outside of like Mozambicans and Nigerians and Angolans who come to South Africa, I had never actually met other kinds of black people other than South Africans. I certainly hadn't met them elsewhere. It was my first time going to England. I was 13. My mom lives in South London, which is predominantly Jamaican. First time I'd ever met a Jamaican. First time I'd ever met a Caribbean. Um, I would go in to meet more Cubans because there's a, there's, a, there's a Cuban exchange in South Africa as a teenager, but that was the first time I met Caribbean. First time I've met Nigerians and Zimbabweans outside of Africa. And they had the shit down. New homies from Nigeria and Zim would come in. They would, you know, sleep on somebody's couch or floor for six weeks, get a job. Somebody would help them set up or buy like a phone, all the stuff. And then once they get going, they help the next person. And I was like, shit. The key to this immigration shit is making sure you have a network. And I learned how to network from Caribbeans and Nigerians in, in England because I was like, oh, this is how it's done. So by the time I got to New York this time around, I was ready. I was excited. This is the pace I had chosen. 
And the first couple of weeks, I got here in the fall. So the beginning of the fall, end of the summer. It was great. The weather wasn't too hot, but it was my first time ever having a job in New York. And so it's got a very different feel. The first time I came to New York was 2011. And when you're coming on holiday and you have nothing to do, and you're just like here to chill. I was here to chill and do like an internship for like two weeks. And the other six or seven weeks, I literally was just like daily waking up, walking around, going to museums, taking pictures, chilling, meeting people, new people, smoking joints with random guys in the park and just enjoying a New York tea life. But the vast difference to when I had to start working and paying rent like no one prepares you for you know you know anywhere else in the world there are places in the world you can look for a place to live and you will almost certainly find a decent place for a cheap price you know it'll be safe it'll be con- conveniently community enough new york mat it is literally always a miracle when you find a place that is affordable and safe and clean and so that was frightening to me because i thought that i knew new york but i didn't this first couple of weeks i wasn't going to get paid i wasn't like a probation i was on one of those like j1 training visas you have it for 18 months or 20 months the company doesn't even have to pay you for the first month or two because you're getting trained so like literally the first two months i wasn't getting paid mate and i had savings and i had my incredible mate who lent me money as well but yeah i have a deep love for the diaspora because my blackness and my africanness was valued so deeply by other cultures and i can't ever forget the kindness and and wisdom and network and all kinds of things just shown to me by other members of the diaspora. A big thank you to Zianda for sharing her story. One of the things that caught my attention the most was towards the end when she was speaking about how much the immigrant community has helped her living in New York. As somebody who lived in New York for 10 years, I think that's the part that is really important for anyone that is moving to the United States. Networking and meeting people and people showing you the way, pretty much helping you navigate, helping you find your way around is so important. I'm looking to have an episode that goes into more detail about that part actually, because I think sometimes we underrate how much people can help us on our journey. Sometimes random strangers can be of so much help to us but yeah thanks to Zianda for sharing her story if you want to find Zianda, you can look her up on twitter at zeke ny that's z-e-e-k-n-y she also has a podcast as well called the heroine cheek podcast which i'm going to link in the description of this episode if you want to listen to more of her story you can go on patreon.com slash wally that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash wally where you find uh, more of my conversation with Zeander. she goes into details on her theory on why violence against women in south africa has become what it is today she talks about other things as well also don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and on your social media platforms it's always nice to have more people listening to the show and coming across all the stories if you're an iphone user please go on Apple Podcasts, look for In These Moments and give a five-star rating. This helps with more people coming across the show. You could leave a review there and help with getting the message out there more. Um, But thank you so much for listening to this. I'll be back with you next time. Take care of yourself and bye.